Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My guest today is an old friend of mine, Molly Weisenberg, who created the food blog Orangette, which won the James Beard Award for Best Food Blog in 2015, something I'm still jealous about. And she's the author of three books, all three of which I've loved and read and adored. Her first book was called A Homemade Life, which still has recipes in it that I use. Her second book was called Delancey, about opening the restaurant Delancey in Seattle. And her most recent book is called The Fixed Stars, and it's now out in paperback. In today's session, we talk all about what it's like to parent her daughter, June, food-wise. I mean, if there is one thing that we believe in this household, it is we will never tell her uh, what to eat and no food is bad and no food is good. How she knows if she's oversharing in her writing. Why is this story in here? Like, what is this contributing to the overall, like, themes of this book? And what the future holds for her career. But yeah, I don't, I don't find myself wanting to write about food anymore. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Molly Weisenberg. All right, Molly, it's so nice. Well, it's been, yeah, I was just saying like almost a decade maybe since I've seen you. I, it could be that long. I don't know if I've seen you in the time since I like have had a child, which my God was almost nine years ago, Adam. I think it was right around that time. I, the last I remember really seeing you is when there was a blizzard in Seattle and you were kind enough to let me stay in your basement. <laughs> that was 2008, dude. <laughs> I remember. That was 13 years ago. Okay. Yeah. It's I remember because yeah. it was the, it was the winter before we opened Delancey um, uh, and you stayed in our basement and, but then I also remember spending a new year's with you. Yeah. You were so kind. You made us a whole dinner. And, <laughs> and I remember it was, it was like, you had this little kitchen table, but it felt very like formal and festive and like, sort of like, we might as well have been at the four seasons or something. Cause it was so oh my lovely. God. Dude, we were crammed into a duplex <laughs> kitchen in Seattle. <laughs> That's I loved it though. You. No, it was so charming and wonderful. Um, well, Molly, congratulations on your new book. I, I just finished reading it. It's, I know it's out in paperback now. Yes. And I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. So open and honest and um, just also very interesting, especially as someone who knows you. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious, uh, what it, what's it been like for you to have this book out there in the world? It's really good. You know, I, um, <clears throat> it's interesting cause I feel so much, I always feel so much relief, mm -hmm. um, in getting to like tell my own story. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people look at it and people always say to me, Oh, it's so honest or it's so brave, which I, I think is always a little bit like, <laughs> I'm always worried. <laughs> there's an undertone of like, Whoa, you've gone too far. Like, well, yeah, like, it's like if somebody says, brave of you. yeah, like your outfit looks is brave of you to wear that. It's like, yes. Oh, is that an insult? Or is that um, totally. a compliment? Yeah, totally. Um, but no, I feel I think that, you know, whatever my orientation as a writer is, mm -hmm. I feel tremendous relief in telling my story, even if it is difficult, or even if it's a story that, you know, um, that brings up a lot of feelings in people. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I was curious, because yeah. I mean, I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. We came up together as food bloggers. We did. And what was interesting about reading this book was that as a fan of your previous books, there was there was always like the food component mm -hmm. and, and recipes. And so I'm curious, like, on your path or on your journey as a writer, do you see yourself returning 
ultimately to another food book? Or do you think you're going to keep going down this path of moving away from food as, as a subject? You know, it's interesting. Cause I, um, I really think writing about food taught me how to write. Mm-hmm. Like it was a really great way of learning how to write specifics, like Mm -hmm. learning how to write with detail, learning how to write scenes. Um, But I don't feel compelled to write about it anymore. Um, I think that, I mean, my editor pointed out to me how much food there is in the fixed stars, Mm -hmm. like, or even, you know, like food uh, references or references to that kind of domestic life. Yes. But yeah, I don't, I don't find myself wanting to write about food anymore. What about you? Yeah. I mean, it's a funny question. I've, I've circled around it. It's, I I say this quote a lot on my podcast because it comes from Gabrielle Hamilton, but she's, she wrote in her memoir, like, be careful what you get good at. You'll be doing it for the rest of your life. Yes. And and it's like a curse. Like I think about that a lot because, you know, I've, I've gone, I've written for TV and I've done like screenplays and stuff, but circling back to food is always comforting to me and comfortable. And sometimes I forget that there, you know, I'll, I'll get an email from somebody. I'm sure you get them all the time. Like I made your pasta this week, or I made that soup that you posted about, or even this week, somebody was like, I still make the salad you used to make when you lived in Brooklyn across from a key foods. And, you know, it's like it, that feel that's in a weird way that makes me feel so much more connected to an audience than writing, trying to write the great American novel or something, you know, it's like, this is actually specifically touching people and, and affecting their lives. It is interesting. I was just thinking that this morning I was like brushing my teeth and looking at Instagram, (laughs) that terrible habit. And, um, and I was like, oh my God, my granola will, Mm -hmm. and it's not even mine. I mean, like, (laughs) you know, it's like something I adapted from somebody else's recipe, but that granola is going to outlive me by decades. Chocolate in it, right? Chocolate. Uh, Well, so that one is one of them, but then there's also this one I called granola number five, which because it was the the fifth granola recipe I had posted. Uh And it's still the one that I make. It's, it's basically, I think that the original, original version was from early bird granola. Mm -hmm. Uh So an olive oil and maple syrup thing. I remember the olive oil was in that. I remember you had an olive oil granola. So that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, mine is like, I think two generations adapted from the early bird recipe. Wow. Okay. So I think yeah. when, when you said that you're not sure about food writing anymore, I felt like I heard thousands of hearts breaking across the world <laughs> as you said that. I mean, do you, cause you still do your podcast, right? Which is about food, right? Well, so it is about food, but I mean, the, the truth is, is it's kind of about food the way that I think I've always written about food, which is like, it takes food as this starting point and kind of runs from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do that too. I mean, I that's what I love. That's my favorite food writing is where food seems to be the subject, but it's not the subject at all. It's sort Mm -hmm. of the prompt that gets you there or symbol Mm -hmm. or something else. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I I think another part of this, which you and I could both speak about, which is just food blogging in general, just like that form sort of having its heyday and then Mm -hmm. sort of starting to feel like it's drifted away. Although some people are still doing it. I mean, for me personally, Substack has sort of become a nice Mm -hmm. outlet for me because Mm-hmm. People who subscribe to my Substack, it's like, okay, they want to hear from me. So I'll write like little dispatches mm-hmm. every week. Um, but for you, was it, was food blogging, was the blogging of it all, like the form of that, what was appealing or was it, would you have, do you think you would have found an outlet for food writing no matter what? I mean, I think if I were starting today, I'd probably use Substack. Oh, you would? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because I think like what drew me to the blog in the first place was, the fact that it was this public thing mm-hmm. 
And even though in the beginning, nobody was reading it and I would have been crazy to think anybody would, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that it was public made me feel accountable to it. Because mm-hmm. I, I've never been one of those writers who um, is really disciplined about writing. Like I don't right. have a daily writing practice. Um, I mean, except when I'm deep in working on a book. Mm-hmm. But the blog, like, uh, was this like wheel I could chain myself to in mm-hmm. a really positive way. And I think Substack does that now for people. Oh yeah, especially when people are paying for your words oh, every week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I have my Monday newsletter is free. Um, but my Thursday one people pay for it and it's like, oh my God, like even today, today's Thursday. And it's like, I've got to write my paid newsletter because people paid for this. And it's, it's definitely like hanging over my head throughout the day. So that's a good thing, I think. Yeah. And I mean, it reminds me of, but it, it also reminds me of this feeling that I always had, like I, I never, I never wanted to run ads on the blog in mm-hmm. part because I didn't want the pressure of it. Yeah. Like I wanted the money. Um, but I didn't want the pressure of being accountable to somebody other than, I mean, it was enough to be accountable to my readers, Mm -hmm. you know? So I don't know, maybe Substack is a happy, is like a nice hybrid where you are accountable to your readers still, but also making money, like without the kind of intermediary of a corporation. Well, it's funny because some people use Patreon and that freaks me out. Like, where it's like, um, Hey, will you subsidize? my creative lifestyle, like abstractly, like, and just sort of put money in my account. Like, I I think it's nice to say, okay, if you give me money, I will send you a newsletter every Thursday and you'll pay for that. I mean, because there's Mm -hmm. something in in, in our modern, like sort of uh, internet culture of supporting artists that feels like there's a very gray area of like, you know, when are you taking advantage of people versus when are you genuinely supporting what you're doing? You know, so I, I think that I feel more comfortable with Substack. But to your point about ads, like I stopped doing my blog when Miracle Whip sponsored three videos for me. And I felt like I hit rock bottom because I was like, <laughs> I'm like, it, I, it was so disgusting. I should be careful what I say. I'm sure I'm going to get sued, but it was so gross. And I had to like recreate all these dishes with Miracle Whip. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. It's so interesting though. Cause yeah, I, I even think about this with ads on our podcast Yeah, because you know, we, we work with a broker, uh, an ad broker, and we get to choose what ads we do and don't want to run. So there are all kinds of things we turn down. I mean, we've had like gun companies want to advertise oh with God. us and we, we do not do that. I'm sure you have um, a lot of listeners who love, love guns. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. Um, but you know, even the ones that we do run, um, yeah, it, it's always a challenge for me, even when it's a company I really like or a company I feel good about. It's such a strange like transaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, it must feel nicer. Yeah. To get money directly from the people who are consuming your product. Like, I mean, I know that I feel really good about the like four or five sub stacks that I subscribe to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a really nice feeling. I feel that same way. Well, Molly, we've avoided the subject long enough. Uh, It's time to ask you now. Now, this is a little bit of a twist from our normal format, because normally I'll say, what did you have for lunch today? But because Mm. we're doing this in the morning, this is going to be, what did you have for lunch yesterday? But I don't think it makes it less valid. I think we'll still be able to use it as a prompt to explore your life. So what did you have for lunch yesterday? Okay. I would say, excuse me. I I don't know what that meant. I also want to say just a second ago that my water bottle squeaked across my desk and I just want to clarify it was my water bottle, <laughs> oh, not anything else. Yes. And I really did just sneeze. That was not a water bottle. Okay. Anyway. Um, okay. So I, I, I'm 
you know, I realized as I was eating my lunch yesterday, I was looking at my calendar and I was like, oh yeah, tomorrow's the day I'm talking to Adam. And I was really glad that I had happened to choose the lunch I had because it is so typical of me. So here's what my lunch was. Okay. Um, it was like a mishmash lunch. So I was at home, okay. mishmash lunch of leftovers slash something quick. So I had leftover, um, so the night before I had boiled some potatoes from our CSA box mm -hmm. and just put salted butter and salt and pepper on them. And I feel like leftover boiled potatoes are never as good. Ne leftover potatoes, I don't think are ever as good as freshly cooked potatoes, mm -hmm. but I had leftover buttered boiled potatoes that yeah. I had microwaved. Yeah. I had leftover <clears throat> roasted zucchini mm -hmm. from our CSA box. Uh, and I had a slice of like grocery store, whole wheat bread with Tillamook sharp cheddar melted on it. So ah. leftover boiled potatoes with butter, leftover roasted zucchini and cheese toast. And this is a very typical lunch for me. There's a lot that this raises so many questions and I don't even know where to begin, but wait, well, wait, wait, do you want me to tell you what my lunch dessert was? Yes, please. I oh, want to hear okay. all of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I, this is a, this is another like very me thing. I had graham crackers and dark chocolate. And to me, it's like, uh, the best part of s'mores, mm -hmm. but you can like eat it anywhere and you don't need a flame. Well, that was my first question was about, um, <laughs> okay. was about temperature because mm -hmm. I noticed when you were talking about these various lunch items, um, you talked about like microwaving the potatoes mm -hmm. and, yep. Yep. and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how temperature functions in your food life? Like, 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 do you need your food, food to be hot? Would you be okay eating the potatoes cold out of the refrigerator? What, when do you need to heat something up? When are you mm. okay with room temperature? Mm. Wow. How specific do you want me to get Adam? I mean, like very, this is lunch therapy. Let's go. Okay. Okay. Great. So if it's potato salad, mm -hmm. if it's a potato dish that is meant to be eaten cold, I will eat it like straight out of the fridge. Okay. You know, or if it's meant to be eaten at room temperature, I'll mm -hmm. eat it straight out of the fridge. If it's something that I uh, intended to serve warm, like those buttered potatoes, I really, I mean, like they don't have a lot of other flavor going on other than the butter and the butter. Like, I mean, there was kind of like a smear of butter mm -hmm. that I could still see visible. Like I needed to remelt that stuff, you know? Yeah. It's funny because we so, don't own a microwave in our house. So you're it's, one uh, of those people. Yeah. I mean, I just sort of took pride in it at the beginning, but now it's sort of annoying. It's like, actually, it would be nice to have a microwave. So keep going though. I want to hear more about your temperature journey. Yeah. We, we use the microwave all the time for reheating food. Um, I don't, I don't know what I would do without it. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. The zucchini, my daughter loves zucchini and she will just like, in fact, as I was making my lunch yesterday, making in quotes, more like assembling my lunch, she came along and like was eating zucchini slices, like cold out of the Tupperware that I was taking them out of. That's not my thing. Really? I, I need to take the chill off. Like I want them to at least be room temperature. Hmm. So I don't need them to be piping hot. Um, but yeah, I want them to be at least room temperature. You know what my thing is, is texture. Cause like if I, if I roast zucchini to a certain texture and then mm -hmm. I refrigerate it and then I were to heat it up again, I feel like it would get mushier. It does. It for yeah. sure does. I mean like any, you know, nice, I mean, I had roasted it 
so that, you know, uh, at least one side was really nicely browned mm -hmm. and a little bit, you know, yeah, just had a little variation of texture um, from the, the kind of middle. But yeah, I mean, it for sure just gets mushier, but I like mushy zucchini. Got I'm, not it. One of, I... I'm not one of those people who, who can't deal with mushy zucchini. Are you one of those people? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I enjoy a roasted vegetable for the texture. Like, I think the texture is the that and the, like the like char. Mm -hmm. But I think I like a bite to my vegetables. I like mm. there to be. I like them to be toothsome, so to speak. Oh no, I can totally roll with mush. Ugh, no, I don't like mush. <laughs> no, that actually made my stomach turn a little bit when you said that. Maybe it's you good you're stopping food writing because you just made me <laughs> nauseous. Um, well, Molly, the other part of your description of your lunch, which I think is much more like getting personal and like really going into your psychology. So I hope you're ready. Mm, okay. was, was when you said this lunch is very me. And, yeah. you were, and that you were mm. you were glad that it was very you. And it mm -hmm. made me think a little bit about presentation, like how how you like to present yourself to the world. Like, wow, okay. because because you knew because you knew you were going to be talking about this lunch and it made you happy to be able to talk about one that represented you. And so totally. And so it makes me think about your books. It makes me think about your blog. It makes me think about. So it just feels like in that in that description of your lunch, it felt like it kind of opened a Pandora's box of all the things that kind of you know circle Adam. around your. Yeah. Adam, you're really good at your job here. Thank you. Yeah. yeah nice well, job, dude. Okay. Well, let's hear. I want to hear what you think about that. Well, no, I think I think you're right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I uh yeah, I am not the kind of person who can rally to make myself a, like uh I, I almost never make lunch. Like mm. I will not turn on the stove and make lunch. Occasionally I'll make my daughter a grilled cheese and like, you know, melt the butter, brush it onto the bread, mm -hmm. do it in a cast iron skillet. But that, that is like lunchtime cooking for me. I do not want to cook at lunch mm. and I don't want to pretend that I do because it is so, I just don't want to do it. Got it. So you, you like this lunch because it represented a, a central truth about you. It's just, yeah. you're, you're like, a lazy lunch maker. I'm a totally lazy lunch maker and I don't, I don't think that there's anything morally flawed about it. I'm totally no. cool with it. But what's so funny um, about your lazy lunch making is there's so much attention to detail. It's like the Tillamook cheddar on the yes. whole wheat bread, the dark chocolate on the ground. You know, it's like yeah. everything still has an yes. attention to detail. Yeah. Well, and I think this was how my food writing was too. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at my recipes, um, they were always like pretty ordinary or not ordinary, but not highly spiced, not highly seasoned. I mean, beyond like salt. Um, I think that, uh, though I do certainly love like more flavorful, uh, cuisines mm -hmm. and cook, uh, cook quite flavorfully, um, like at a baseline, I really just love, um, like, you know, it's that old, like trite Alice Waters thing. Like I really like taking something that's good and then like just cooking it. So it tastes good mm -hmm. without too many additional adornments. So yeah, these, like these potatoes I had from our CSA, um, they were just like really good. You know how sometimes potatoes can almost be a little bitter, mm -hmm. like, like, um, these were just like really good potatoes. Right. So I was just happy to boil them and put, but I put like Kerrygold salted butter on them. Mm, that's good. And like, that was the stuff, man. I mean, I can't imagine anything better than like boiled potatoes with good salted butter. 
So it's interesting because like the the excitement that this represented you is sort of almost in its like humbleness or like in its like lack of pretension that it was sort of just a, a simple lunch that that as opposed to like a lunch that wouldn't have res- represented you as well. Or like, you know, I mean, I would love it if somebody would come along and make me like an Odo Lange recipe for lunch, you know, mm-hmm. with like 16 ingredients. But, you know, I mean, Odo Lange recipes have a lot of ingredients, but yeah. tend to be quite easy to execute. Mm-hmm. But still, I will never make myself an Odo Lange recipe for lunch. And it's not because I don't think I'm worth it or because I don't have the time. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, I just don't. I just don't care. I have these other yeah. things that I like just as much. So Adam, will you come over and make me an Odo Lanky lunch? <laughs> no way. I can't do that. I'm a professional lunch therapist. That would violate my entire code of honor. Okay. Yeah, okay. I can't do that. I mean, there's a certain kind of therapy where the therapist does that. And that's a different lunch therapy. Okay. Yeah, I don't okay. practice that way. Um, oh, okay. But one thing I picked up on when you were talking was about making a grilled cheese for June. Yeah. And that, that I related to that in the sense that like when Craig isn't here and he says, hello, by the way, not to break the fourth wall. Hello, Craig. Craig says hi. Um, when Craig isn't here, I will be just like you and just literally scrounge through the refrigerator and like find like, or find like a frozen soup and heat it up and just eat that. Mm-hmm. But when he is here, like I'll go all out and I'll make like a nice lunch. I'll make a nice dinner. And I'm curious with June, yeah. you, you make her a grilled cheese. Are you more likely to take the time and make a nice meal for somebody else than you are for yourself? I think so. And I have to say, I think, especially for my child, like somehow I feel like well, I should also say that June really loves to eat mm-hmm. and she loves to cook and she is a really fun person to cook for and to eat with because she really loves it. And she, she notices things. How old is she? She's eight. Wow. I can't um, believe that. Oh my God. She, yeah, she's, oh, you would have so much fun eating with her. She's so fun. And she's, I think she's definitely got like her dad's palate. Brandon was always better or is Brandon is still living. (laughs) He's alive. (laughs) Brandon's better at like parsing flavors in a Mm -hmm. dish than I am. And June is really good at that. So I think, you know, between the fact that I like caring for the people I love with food, whether it's my spouse or or our child. Um, I think also that I really, I'm always up for going to the trouble to cook for people who I know love to eat. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really fun. Yeah. And so June, um, I also love cooking for Ash, particularly the dishes that they really love that mm-hmm. I cook. So I think that's it for me too. Like I don't love cooking every night. I don't always love cooking for my people, but I love cooking for them um, because they, because I can tell that it matters to them. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember the first time I met you, I think you had us over, Craig and I over to your house and and made us lunch. And I actually think I remember what it was. I think it was like chicken breasts, like with the skin on and like cider, like it was like braised in cider, I think. I did that? I think so. It might be on my blog. I'm sure I wrote about it. Adam, yeah, I was trying to show off. Dude. I guess so. That yeah, is, that is. But that was a normal. long time ago. That was like five decades ago. So That's you know. True. Nobody, but I was curious when you were just talking a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about audience for you, the idea of an audience, and that mm-hmm. you said you like to um, make food for people who will appreciate it and or people who enjoy food. And so I'm curious, like, how does the role of audience function for you when you're writing? I mean, are you thinking mm. when you write, like, I'm writing for a specific audience, or is it? Are you writing to please yourself or both? 
you know, there, I remember, especially when I was blogging and, and, you know, feeling that pressure to, to produce the way that we were talking about earlier. I remember at the time, especially because I was reading a lot of blogs, there were, you know, months at a stretch where I had a particular like other blogger I was writing toward. And it Mm -hmm. actually wasn't generally, I had like a number of art and photography blogs I followed. Mm -hmm. Um, but these people would always write a little bit to go along with their photos. And, and I really admired these people. And I remember writing in my mind to these people, like Mm -hmm. people who, who created a feeling in me. And so I wanted to write to them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, I think it continues to be the same, although like maybe less specific now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when I was writing the fixed stars in many ways, I was, I was writing what I wanted to read, which I think is always a, like a good approach. Um, but I think I was also writing because I wanted to be in conversation on the page with a lot of the writers whose work I was reading as I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a big part of it is, yeah. is sort of like going on this journey with you. I mean, the other part about your writing is as much as it's for an audience, it always feels like a journal. Almost. I mean, it almost feels like we're entering your private thoughts and we're, mm-hmm. we're sitting there with you. So it, it does feel like, like it's not for an audience, but in the same way it is for an audience. So it kind of sits interestingly mm-hmm. on that line, which mm-hmm. I, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the link between that and your cooking. Cause I feel like that's kind of a fascinating thing to look at is like when you're cooking for people versus cooking for yourself, when you're writing mm-hmm. for other people versus writing for yourself. It is interesting because if there is one thing that will like for sure stress me out or make me an unpleasant person to be around. Mm -hmm. It is making a recipe that I don't want to make, Mm -hmm. or even, I mean, I have to say like June, my daughter like still remembers this time that she, so she used to watch MasterChef Junior. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We were once uh, at Book Larder, the cookbook bookstore Mm -hmm. here in Seattle. And she saw a MasterChef Junior cookbook and she was like, oh, can we get it? And I was like, okay, absolutely. Sure. So we got this cookbook, we brought it home and she found in it, this recipe for this layered, uh, like, like parfait type dessert, but it involved, there was a layer of like raspberry gelée in it <laughs> that was, you know, set with gelatin. And then there was a raspberry mousse. And then there was some third thing. And I was so grouchy the entire time <laughs> I was like helping her make this because it was so complicated. I didn't want to be doing it. Um, so, uh, and I would say in general that I'm a real repertoire cook. Like I do try new recipes all the time, but I get, tr- I get tremendous satisfaction out of making a recipe that is like my tried and true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that feels like comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, I mean, in many ways, I, I don't know, I think it's about, um, I think I'm really aware at any given time, whether I'm cooking or writing mm-hmm. of, of whether what I'm doing feels like me or not. Well, that's a nice um, a segue into your book, because it makes me think so much about the feelings you were feeling um, when you first felt an attraction to a woman mm-hmm. and you were married to Brandon and that mm-hmm. it was once again, like you being true to your inner voice. Or, I mean, the same thing that's telling you to eat potatoes for lunch, just like <laughs> telling you that maybe you're, you, you want to be with a woman, you know, I, I feel like there's 
the, the, they're exactly the same. Potatoes <laughs> for lunch. Yeah. Sex with Romance women. with women. Yeah. 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 Totally. Uh, but, but I feel like, but I think that the through the through line with all of that is like this voice within you that's telling you who you are or pulling you towards something that's authentic to you. And that it's hard for you to dial that down. I mean, even when you're cooking with June and she wanted to make that layered dessert, that that was really hard for you to make yeah. this thing that wasn't you. And I feel like that. I was a real jerk. She's always like, Mom, Mama, do you remember how cranky you were? I was like, that this dessert is so stupid. Well, that leads me to another question, actually, which is um, how do you think you'll handle June's differentiation eventually with food? Like, mm. like if she starts getting into like fast food hamburgers or I don't know, like gets into something that you're not as into. Yeah, yeah, as, yeah. Do you think you'll be OK with that or you think you're going to try to steer her back into Molly world? No, I mean, we're all okay with fast food hamburgers to yeah. just to, just to, you know, riff on that example. We're all into fast food hamburgers here. Um, you know, it's actually been interesting because she has decided to be a pescatarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was, well, I mean, I, I referred to myself as a vegetarian because I don't think I knew the word pescatarian, but mm-hmm. I was mostly vegetarian for like my late teens and the first half of my twenties. Now I eat everything. Um, but it's been interesting for me and for Ash to, you know, to try to kind of figure out how to be supportive because uh, like there, I mean, if there is one thing that we believe in this household, it is, we will never tell her, uh, what to eat and no food is bad and no mm-hmm. food is good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I love that she knows what she wants and has an opinion about it. Um, and, and I do my best to support it. Um, but, but it's been interesting because, um, yeah, cause it, it, it does mean thinking about the way that I cook or what I'm cooking mm-hmm. so that I can, and to be fair, she, she, um, she still, you know, like makes exceptions and things like that, which I think is wonderful and really healthy. And I'm glad she does. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tricky figuring out how to both empower her to be in control of her own body and, mm-hmm. and what she wants, um, and also be the one who's cooking our meals most of the nights. Right. Cause so, there, yeah. there comes that question of like, I worked so hard on this and she's like, I'm not eating it. And then it's sort of like, well, I respect your desire not to eat this, but also like I'm exhausted <laughs> and eat it. You know, I, I think that, that gets, it's like, I think when I think about being a parent, which I'm not going to be, but um, like it's, I always imagine, oh, the fantasy of like, oh, I'm going to make my famous roast chicken or I'm going to make my famous cavatappi with sun-dried tomatoes and my children were going to be like, father, like this is so delicious. But like, I'm sure that's not the reality at all. Well, you know, I have to say, I think that I have, I think I have it pretty good in that she eats a wide variety of things. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, we, we share custody with her dad. And Mm -hmm. so for half the week, she's not with us. So the half the week that she's not with us is when I do like spicier cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, but inevitably, like, I think because I was sort of a vegetarian for so long, I think that in, in our household, like the things I'm inclined to cook are the things she likes to eat anyway. Mm -hmm. And then we, we get the luxury of being, child free and eating whatever we want, like half the week. And that's, that is a rare thing and, and pretty cool for me as a cook. So I have, I, you know, honestly, um, 
I feel like it, it doesn't feel like too much trouble on the nights when she's here to make stuff that we all love to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, and then to make, you know, maybe more challenging stuff, um, while she's gone. And then the best part is when she comes back, she finds the challenging stuff in the fridge and then she wants to eat it. <laughs> ah. And that's pretty great. Yeah. So slowly broaden the repertoire without yeah. the risk of like her not liking dinner. You know what I mean? That's really smart. It's like the it's forbidden fruit or it's like the thing that you're not, that this is too grown up for you. It's like, well, it's I want that. Great. Yeah. Yes. Well, it makes it, it makes me curious, like in your new, in your life with Ash, how, how has your food life changed since I knew you like 10 or 15 mm -hmm. years ago, you know, like how, how, have, how has your cooking changed and your approach to food? You know, it's interesting. Cause I think, um, you know, I, I think that I'm still very interested in food and, um, I am definitely like the menu planner and the grocery shopper in our household. And it feels really natural to me and mm -hmm. effortless. I think because I spent so long, learning how to do that mm -hmm. and caring about it. But food has a much less central role in my life now being, being in relationship with someone who, um, who really is just learning how to cook mm -hmm. and who, um, uh, has not historically been, um, like as adventurous an eater as, as I have been. Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I feel like I'm working with a lot more kind of, you know, preferences, likes and dislikes now, but I don't really care because I'm not trying to like write about it all the time mm -hmm. or try new recipes all the time. Like it really appeals to the part of me that loves to have a repertoire of like two dozen things that I make. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that food is a really enjoyable thing, but not something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Hmm. It makes me wonder, like, why do you think food was so central to who you were for so long? And why do you think that went away? Hmm. I think that, you know, I grew up in a family where food, I would say that the family I have now mm -hmm is similar to how my family was growing up in terms of food. Like food was a central part of our day. We always ate dinner together and my parents really cared about what, what we ate and they took pleasure in caring about mm -hmm. it. Um, my parents definitely were the kind of parents who would like travel, you know, with a restaurant destination in mind. I remember and I one of your books, like writing about your yeah. father and going to Paris with him and eating a croissant. Yeah. Yes. That, did I make that up or is that really one of your, no, I, have, no, I have a memory a, of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I actually, I don't feel that way anymore. Like the past mm -hmm. few times that I've traveled, like food is just not a big part of it. Right. Uh, or, or I don't spend a lot of time planning where we're going to eat or what we're going to eat. But, um, you know, I think the period of my life when I was writing about food, food was much more at the fore of my life than it was in my childhood. And then it is now. And in many ways, it kind of pushed my interest in it to not a breaking point, but like to an extreme where like, I got tired of it. Um, you know, like I was never interested in, <clears throat> I'm, I've always been a terrible 
recipe developer and recipe tester. Like I don't, I get, I don't like making the same thing over again. I don't like fine tuning dishes. I want them to work the first time. Me too. And I'm testing a cookbook right now. So it's like, yeah, I did this 15 times. No, I did it like two times. Oh my God. Some some people are so good at that. And I am not good at that. So, so I would say the relationship that I have with food now feels just more natural to me and less like effortful mm-hmm. than it did when I was writing about food. Um, yeah. So yeah, what, is, writing, what, yeah. Oh, go ahead and keep going. So I think, you know, I mean, I think some of it is just like, you know, I mean, I started writing about food for the blog when I was 26 mm-hmm. and I, became a full-time writer writing mostly about food when I was, I think 30. Okay. And so, you know, now I'm, I'm about to be 43 and, um, I've, you know, now I have, I have a child, I'm, I I have a second marriage. I just feel, uh, like I'm getting ever more, uh, aware of what I want and what I don't want like not interested in sort of like, uh, pushing to extremes, you know, like just because I like food doesn't mean that I want to write about it or think about it or cook it all the time. Well, I think that you had a very different journey though. I keep saying journey, but that, that word keeps popping up. Um, than I did in the sense that for a while, I mean, your, your second book was Delancey and I feel like going into into the restaurant part of food and the stresses of that and, and how exhausting that is could probably like, that's a really knock the wind out of you. (laughs) That's a really good point. And you know, it's weird that I didn't think of that. So I've been out of the restaurant for just over three years now. Mm -hmm. And it is crazy to me how far away from it. I feel Um, like, wow, it was such a, like, I, I look back and like, I think I, I had to stretch myself so far to live in that world, um, mm-hmm. that like, you know, it's like, like a rubber band, like yeah. then once I was out of it and like snapped back to my normal shape, like it seems so far away from me. So, but yes, I do think that being in the world, being in the restaurant world, though, I do miss it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I do miss that feeling of like, uh, you know, knowing all the people who ran the restaurants around here and having that kind of broader community of mm-hmm. like, you know, be like being able to care for each other that way, yeah. you know, I miss that. But at the same time, um, boy, I never, yeah. Running a restaurant and cooking in a restaurant and thinking about food the way that you do when you are, um, running a restaurant and cooking in a restaurant was never for me. And so I think, yeah, it made me, it it made me, (laughs) it made me all the more aware of what was me. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because every so often someone will be like, Adam, why don't you open a restaurant? And I'll, or sometimes I'll like, I'll see like a space that's like, Ooh, that would make a cute little restaurant. What if I like opened one up and like made my little food for everybody. But you know, it's, I, I actually, I'm curious, like if you had to sum up in, in some way, like what, if you were trying to like open somebody's eyes to the realities of what it's like to open a restaurant or the parts of it that you really struggled with the most, what would you say? Oh my God, where to begin? Where <laughs> to begin? 
you know, the thing I have to say at the outset is like, I, I think I'm not a great person to ask about this because I so am not cut out for running restaurants. But I think I'm the same as you. I mean, I love writing. I, I love yeah. being at home. I love being in my own kitchen. So I think we're very similar. So I'm curious what that was like for you. Well, I think it's a number of things. Number one, it's extremely repetitive. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, you are making the same things over and over and over again. Um, you know, within the course of an evening, for sure. Um, and most of the time, you know, unless you're in fine dining and changing the menu every day, or in a tiny little place, changing the menu every day, you are making the same thing repetitively. Um, and there is this incredible pressure that is difficult to capture. And it's, it's more than the pressure of knowing that there's people sitting in the dining room waiting for what you're making. It's this, I mean, I remember after we like officially opened Delancey, like August 12th, 2009, I remember thinking, oh my God, we're never not going to be running a restaurant. Like (laughs) never. Like, because the thing is, is even, you know, the, it, it doesn't, at least if you own the restaurant and cook in it, it never ends in the sense that there's all the admin to do, mm-hmm. but also there's the logistics of cooking, right? Like in order to have things ready, when you open the doors at 5 PM on a Saturday, you often need to be pickling things like weeks before, mm-hmm. or you need to make the dough the day before. So you're never not aware of this you know, this creature that you are feeding and preparing and grooming so Mm -hmm. that it is ready for the world. And yeah, I just remember thinking, oh my God, like, it's like, we've gotten on a train and you have to keep going. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting to circle back to the earlier parts of our conversation where we were talking about pleasing yourself and pleasing an audience. It's like with a restaurant, it's, it's about pleasing the audience. It's like, Mm -hmm. these are customers. They're going to write bad reviews on Yelp. If you don't please them, you know, it's like people Mm -hmm. expect to be, I mean, that's the part that freaks me out the most is dealing with customers and, you know, somebody sends back their steak and they say it's too overcooked, but you think it's fine. Like, I can't even imagine dealing with that. At least at dinner parties, people are grateful and like, thank you. That's so nice. It's like Mm -hmm. when you're paying customer, it just changes the whole dynamic. Mm -hmm. So I can see why food, food writing and food must be something that you're kind of eager to step away from, at least for a while. And I guess it leads to the question, like, you know, where do you see your writing career going from here? I mean, do you have another project in the works or taking some time? So, so, um, I am usually, you know, I guess because I've, I've always written memoir or personal narrative, I'm somebody who definitely needs, uh, time between book projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I often wish I didn't, but I don't know how to get around that. Um, And so what's actually been really nice is, so I have taught workshops Mm -hmm. uh, for the past decade, but usually it was like a one-off thing because I was running the restaurant or I was writing a book. Um, And so somebody would hire me to write or to to teach a workshop and it would just be this freestanding two or three day thing. And then it would be over, but I always loved it. Oh my God. I loved it so much. Mm -hmm. And um And actually what's been amazing since mid 2020 is because I had to, I I had uh, two workshops lined up to teach during what became the early part of the pandemic and the organizations I was working with really quickly shifted to doing teaching on zoom. Mm -hmm. 
And so it forced me to learn how to teach on Zoom and to adapt curriculum I had to work on Zoom. And I still loved it. That's like, great. Despite the fact that it was on Zoom. So, you know, right now what I do is I teach full time. Do you and teach food writing or you teach memoir writing or so I teach um I teach personal narrative okay. broadly. Some of what I teach um is geared toward, you know, um especially when I'm hired by an outside organization, they often ask me to do things that are food memoir related. Mm -hmm. But in truth, what I'm always teaching is um, how to get inside our memories and mm -hmm. write effectively from memory. And food, I think, is a particularly good way of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but there are so many other, uh, other writers that we read and other approaches that we play with. Mm -hmm. uh, that food becomes just one of them. So yeah, now I run my own workshops and ongoing paid writing groups, um, of adult students who are committed to, uh, to writing personal narrative and we meet weekly. And some of these groups have been together for, uh, coming up on a year now. Wow. And so, you know, groups of four or five writers who have really gotten to know each other's work and, um, and I provide guidance and sort of, um, light curriculum each week, mm -hmm. but we're mostly workshopping their work and, and, and they get to learn together. Well, if I were in your class, the thing that I would ask you and that I admire the most about what you do is how do you write so personally about the people in your life and not worry about what they're going to think about what you write because I mm. have lots of stories about like my parents my husband like and I'm mm. I live in terror of like writing something that will upset them and so I'm curious how do you get over that hump and what do you tell your students about that well I imagine I mean I imagine it's probably really different for you like writing about Craig as opposed to writing about your parents right I mean mm -hmm. like it seems to me that um, the people who like, especially the people who are my chosen family, um, I have never struggled with, um, too many fears about how they will respond to my writing because they're usually there with me as mm -hmm. I'm doing it. Um, but at the same time, what I will say is I think it's really important um, that when we write, that we are always, um, that we are never claiming to represent anyone but ourselves. And mm -hmm. what that means too, is never making assumptions about what the other person was thinking in an interaction. Mm -hmm. It's always like, what did I notice on this yeah. person's face? Or what did this person say to me? Not like what I think they felt yeah. or, you know, whatever. So I'm always trying to show people the difference between writing, staying really firmly in uh, my own skin mm -hmm. um, and, and representing only my experience. I think about it like, um, you know, uh, we, our lives intersect with other people's at various junctures, right? Mm -hmm. And there are often really good stories there, but I can only write from like within my car. And that is ultimately that makes it pretty limiting actually. Mm -hmm. So the degree to which, even though, um, if you look at my writing, it does seem like I'm saying a lot about another person. Um, I, I hope that, that, um, 
well, what you don't notice is like, I'm actually not telling you a lot about them at all. Mm-hmm. So even in my most recent book, there was a, a character uh, who I called Nora, who was a really tricky character to write about because the points where my story intersected with hers were really problematic for me. And, um, and I felt in her presence in ways that were really troubling to mm-hmm. me. Um, and there's a lot that I knew about her um, that was not my business to bring to the page but that informed her behavior, but it was mm-hmm. not my business to write about. Interesting. Okay. And, um, and you'll notice if you look at it, I never tell you what she looked like. I never tell you what she looked like. You don't even know what color her hair is. Hmm. You know what hair, you know, roughly what her haircut looks like. You know that I was aware of her white teeth and you know <laughs> the color of the suit she was wearing, but you know nothing else about her. Right. So there are ways of writing that allow characters to come to life while still protecting them Mm -hmm. and still respecting their privacy. Um, So I don't know, you know, I think I'm also really lucky that um, uh, my family has just been really kind about letting me write about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I had an interesting experience, which I've never talked about, so I'll open up to you, which is that I wrote a, a, a book proposal a couple of years ago called Eggshells, which was uh, stories and recipes from a man-made marriage, because it was sort of like about my marriage to Craig, and I I made it all about like our sex life. I just put like everything into it, and I made it so personal, and I, I was huh. like, I was trying to like similar, similar to you, like walk down a new path and be like, okay, I'm going to like really open up here. And I sent it to my literary agent and she's like, I don't think I could sell this. <laughs> what did she say? She like, I mean, it. why? She just like, when I look back on it, I mean, this is the other thing I was going to ask you about, but like, I, th- I think it was a little over Sherry. Like, I think it, mm. it wasn't necessarily like, it didn't fit neatly into what I was known for, or like what people would want to buy a book for me about it. Just sort of, I think it, it kind of, I think the food element of it was so divorced from the other aspects of mm. it that it felt mm-hmm. like it was a weird marriage. I mean, speaking of marriage, but like mm-hmm. it was just a weird marriage of form and content. It was like either this is like a memoir or like a, a humor book about being gay and married. She also said it's very hard to sell a memoir. She was like, it's difficult to sell memoirs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that one got shelved. I mean, maybe I'll publish it someday, but I, 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 I had that experience. Yeah. I'm so sorry, God, to put so much work into oh, yeah. that and then be told that. It was rough, but at the same time, it was also eye-opening because I was like, okay, like, what about this didn't connect right. with her and why didn't, and, and I found other ways, like, you know, I'm working on a novel now, like I'm doing other projects that she's excited about. And so like, I feel good about, mm-hmm. and I think it was just a weird, I think, and, and maybe it's a good question to ask you is like, do you ever encounter with your students or in your own work, a sense of oversharing, like that it's yes. too yeah. much. And I think that might've been it with mine, but yeah. I'm curious, what is it for you? Like, how do you know? I think that, um, for me, I, especially in writing the fixed stars, I tried to keep an eye on, um, why is this story in here? Like, what is this contributing to the overall like themes of this book? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the fixed stars was very much a book about, about identity and, um, like what about us? can we count on and, Mm -hmm. and what is subject to change and how do we live with that? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I remember thinking as I was writing some of the sex scenes, particularly with the Nora character, 
um, I remember thinking like, why does this need to be in here? Mm -hmm. Like, does this like, you know, on the one hand, I wanted it in there because they were some of my first encounters with a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, but that wasn't enough to justify it. It needed to be in there. I came to believe because in those encounters, I like, I was, I was being confronted with things that made me question my identity or that directly pushed against my ideas of who I was. You had to have that in there. I mean, it was, it was like, you raised the question at the beginning of the book, like, you know, am I attracted to women? Am I, I mean, it was like the question kept growing and growing and growing. So Mm -hmm. it felt essential to see that moment. But even too, I mean, you know, there's a part in the book where she tells me like, queer sex isn't like this, like it Mm -hmm. isn't this thing that you think it is. And that was really, that was a really distressing moment to me. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I remember saying to her, like, what are all these rules you're talking about? Like, are these your rules? Right. Like just what you want and need as like your own individual person or is like, wow, is she right? That like, there's this manual on queer sex out there and I'm doing it wrong and possibly even like in a way that's harmful to her. Oh, so you didn't so, get it in the mail when you came out? I didn't. <laughs> oh, I did, did I'll, you? Send you, I'll send you my copy. Yeah. Okay. It's, okay. It's great. Yeah. But I think that there's also, I think there's a lot of this in some circles of queer culture. And it was important to me to write about that too, about the ways that um, just because I was sort of throwing off the constraints of one identity doesn't mean that, um, that another one offered like liberation. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think for me, like always keeping in mind, especially when I am writing, uh, things that make myself look ugly, things that make other people look ugly, um, or things that are very revealing. Um, I think it's important for me to always keep in mind, like what purpose is this serving Mm -hmm. to the overall narrative? Does it have to be here? Mm -hmm. And, um, like, uh, if somebody's going to come off looking not great here, it better be me. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it makes me think also in terms of the book I tried to sell versus yours is your, yours was a real story with a beginning, middle and an end too. like your, I mean, there was a, your character had an arc that you started in one place and ended in a completely different place. And mm-hmm. I think mine was more just like little dispatches from my life. And so I think that to your point though, about oversharing versus not sharing, like sharing a bunch of personal stuff served your character's arc. I mean, served, yeah, the, served, yeah, yeah. served the, again, the journey that you were on versus like, for me, oversharing was like, okay, like, why do we need to know this in your roast chicken recipe that you had sex the night before you, you know, it's like, where did that come from? Um, so yeah, I think that oversharing is only oversharing if it doesn't serve the story. And I yeah, think- yes, yes. Well, there we go. We solved, we solved writing and all the issues. Nobody has to take your class anymore. Oh, uh, thanks. Adam. <laughs> just kidding. Molly, this was such a great conversation. We're not at the end yet. We're almost there. Um, but actually really, it was one of those conversations where like, huh, like I, I got a lot out of that. So that was great. Oh, good. Um, I start every podcast by asking, what did you have for lunch? But I end every podcast with what will you be having for dinner tonight? 
Oh, for dinner tonight. Oh man. Okay. I'm glad you asked. I am making this recipe that you've probably heard of. Um, it is from King Arthur flour and it's their, like, I think they call it crispy, cheesy pan pizza. Mm -hmm. Have you made it? it? I haven't made it, but I've seen it. It's really good. I mean, it's like a yeasted dough that, um, you make at least 12 hours ahead and it sits in the fridge. Um, it's a really good flavorful dough, despite the fact that it's relatively quick. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then you put grated mozzarella on and then tomato sauce, Mm -hmm. and then a little bit more grated mozzarella and it cooks in a cast iron skillet with a fair amount of olive oil. So the bottom gets crispy. Mm. It's so good. So we're having that tonight and probably, probably just like a green salad. I've got some good lettuce, but this is like peak CSA time. So yeah. I've got some really good lettuce. Is it, so, um, yeah. with, um, June and Ash, do you find yourself like meal planning? Like, like thinking ahead, like we're having this tonight, we're having this tomorrow or, you know, do you, do you know, it just, you just, the, yeah, the yeah, only you, reason that I know this is because I made the dough last night. Okay. And <laughs> it's, it's kind of a fitting, like a metaphor, like a nice image of your old life at Delancey making the dough the night before for all the customers versus now yeah. making a night, night dough night before for your family, which is a nice transition for you. Yes. Uh, well, I guess I could also ask you, what, what will you be having for lunch today? I'm going to have leftover yakisoba because we had yakisoba last night. Dumb question. What is yakisoba? I know what soba is, but I don't know what yakisoba is. Well, so yakisoba is um, basically Japanese stir fried noodles. Okay. So um, I don't believe the noodles, the noodles are not buckwheat, but they are a wheat noodle. Um, And uh, yeah, when I make yakisoba, I usually um, put bacon in it. Um, So it's also cooked in a little bit of bacon fat. Mm -hmm. Um, I love doing cabbage and onion. Mm little bit of fresh ginger scallion. And then the, the, like the flavoring, the sauce can, can either be tonkatsu sauce mm-hmm. or my preference, which is like equal parts, soy sauce and mirin and some chili crisp. Yeah. So you and that to- gets all mixed in at the end of the stir fry. And soba noodles can hold up to a stir fry. I don't think I've ever had stir fried. Well, so it's not, I've never had it with soba noodles. I don't know. My friend, Matthew, who knows Japanese food a lot better than I do, or better yet, a actual Japanese person could probably tell us why it's called yakisoba. Oh, so soba's not in the dish. Soba's not in the dish. It's, Uh, it's a, it's a wheat noodle, but it's not a buckwheat noodle. Got it. Yeah. Um, well, I have one last question for you. It's just a big question, but, um, but it has nothing to do with you personally. It's more to do with Seattle because I associate you so much with Seattle and I, my husband, as you know, is from there and mm-hmm. I visit every so often, but it seems like the city has changed quite a bit in the last mm-hmm. 10 years. And I'm curious um, if you could talk a little bit about that and how Seattle has changed and what that's like for you and how you feel about it. And if you still love living there um, I, because I, of Amazon has come in, right? So, I mean, Amazon has been here for, for a long time, but part of what's shifted is the amount of like money that's been invested by tech companies in the South Lake Union area, which mm-hmm. used to be kind of a like industrial, just kind of warehouses and stuff. And yeah, I mean, now there's like a real like campus, like a uh, tech campus vibe in South Lake Union. And to be honest, I feel like it's a totally different city there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and so I think that the experience of somebody who is in their twenties and working for Amazon or Google in South Lake Union lives a completely different version of Seattle than I do. 
for me. Um, you know, I live in the suburbs and, um, the main thing that I notice, um, that is hugely troubling to me is, uh, well, and now we're just going to end your podcast on a real downer note here is the huge explosion of, of, uh, people without homes. Yes. Um, and you know, whereas it used to be concentrated very much in sort of the downtown areas, um, you know, like, uh, our neighborhood, um, sort of like central plaza where the library is and stuff is a very, um, you know, has, has become a really good spot for a tenant city. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's, it's really heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This intense wealth and investment going into this one part of the city and then seeing, um, people living really difficult lives, um, you know, increasingly, um, spread out all over the city, just so much, I think that, yeah, LA is struggling like that too. I mean, the reason I bring it up and this is actually a happier note to end on is uh, that, you know, we have a lot of friends moving out of LA. And so Craig and I've been talking a lot about, okay, where, where would we go if we were to leave LA? And so New York is definitely a possibility to go back there, but mm-hmm. Seattle definitely comes up as a place that we could potentially go one day. So if I move to Seattle, I hope that I can cook you an Ottolenghi lunch someday. Please. <laughs> yeah. Although, although I know that would be breaking, you know, that would be, you know, crossing yeah. a boundary here with the lunch therapist. Thing, I think but... enough time will have passed. I think it's okay to become friends with your therapist if you haven't seen them for a while. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, well, Molly, this was a delight. And it was so nice to see you again after so much time. Let's not let so much time pass before our next conversation or hangout. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. And, um, and I loved being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. And congratulations again on the book. And if you're listening to this, everybody go buy the fixed stars now in paperback, right? Yes, indeed. All right. Thanks, Molly. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast, Acast, Acast recommends. recommends.